Welcome to Epiphany Brooklyn's podcast. I am Brandon Watts, lead pastor here at Epiph. Thanks so much for tuning in. Our desire is to join Jesus in his mission to redeem our city. May God bless you as you listen and consider subscribing so that you can tune in each week. Grace and peace. Well, what's up, Epiphany Brooklyn family? This is Pastor Earn, and I'm so happy to be here today, uh, pitch hitting for my big brother and my friend, Pastor Brandon Watts, and his lovely wife, Ty. Man, God is doing some really, really amazing things here in Brooklyn, and I'm just so, so happy uh, to play a small, small role in that. And as I mentioned, we're planning a new church in the South Jersey region called Accelerate Church. Uh, It's a new life-giving church where we're hoping to be the ethnic and economic bridge between Camden City and Camden County, right there in the South Jersey region. And our hope is to fill every corner and crevice of South Jersey with the power and the presence of God. And let me just say how much I love you guys. I, I, t- I told Gabe uh, before I got up here to preach, I told him that this is my second favorite church in the world right after mine. And I am so, so thankful um, just to be here and to share the word of God with you today. Uh, if you will, uh, why don't you pray with me? And then we're going to dive in. Um, I, I think the Lord has a, an on-time word for the house today that I think is going to be really, really encouraging. Um, and I just want to invite him into this space for a second. Father, it is by grace that we come to you again in the mighty name of Jesus. Just really saying thank you. Thank you for your power and your presence. Uh, to thank you for your goodness and mercy uh, that was given to us so richly in your son, Jesus Christ. That while we were yet sinners... Lord, you died for us. While we were yet sinners, you bore the wrath, you took the shame, you removed the guilt. Father, and we're so thankful, so appreciative and grateful for that, Lord. I pray that you will anoint the listening ears today and the speaking voice. Lord, let your word fall on fertile soil. Lord, we need the gospel today. We need to hear a word from you. And Father, my prayer is that you will come through like you always do. Because as you mentioned in Jeremiah 1, Lord, you always see and watch over your word. So, Lord, we honor you. We give you glory in Jesus' name. And everybody that agree with that, say amen. You know, um, as I was thinking about what to preach uh, this week and and what um, the Lord had to say, um, I was just kind of working through my journal and looking at my journal and looking at some of the things that I've been praying over the last year or so. And here's what I realized is that it's really difficult to quantify how much of a toll the pandemic has had on our mental and emotional health. It really is. And recently, um, I read this article in Healthline.com, and it really just discussed how we're all returning to this sense of normalcy, right? People are attending outdoor events. They're attending weddings. They're frequenting restaurants. But here's what I realized, that even though things are returning to what they once were, we cannot overlook the lingering effects that the pandemic has had to our emotional and physical well-being. Honestly, it's hard for us to quantify how much the lockdown has affected our mental, emotional, and physical well-being. You know, when I think about COVID, um, when it swept the globe, it caused a few things. Number one was mass hysteria. It caused fear and confusion and frustration, and it has not been easy to deal with. But as the pandemic wore on, it really eroded our emotional health. And sure, things are returning back to normal, but some of us are unaware of these PTSD-like lingering effects that had been caused by extended isolation. And for me, 
the pandemic did this one thing. It reminded me of just how emotionally fragile I really was. You know, when, when my precious freedoms were taken away, when I was unable to go for a walk in the park with my kids, when I was unable to spend time with my wife in public and had to wear a mask as I entered into the grocery store, there was like this surge in my anxiety. It caused all type of uncertainty and worry. And I'm going to be honest, it gave me so much mental fatigue. But one of the best things I did during that season is I reread an important book that was written by Peter Cesaro called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. And he argues in this book, and I'll say that he does it rather convincingly, that it is very difficult to be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. And as I read that book, I realized that um, there were some areas in my spiritual health that needed to be addressed. I, I needed to address some of the deep internal wounds that had been exacerbated by the pandemic. I, I needed to address some patterns of behavior that could potentially impede my spiritual journey. And as I read through those pages, I realized a few things. Number one, I'm very good at doing for God, but I'm not very good at being with God. Sometimes Ernest Grant spiritualizes away conflict. Sometimes I, I, I cover up my brokenness and I tend to, to not live my life out of a place of transparency and vulnerability. And I realized that if I was going to walk in the freedom that God desired for me to have, that I needed to address these unhealthy areas in my emotional life that had been intensified by the lockdown. Now, I know that this is not a therapy session, but I feel very comfortable about sharing this with you because I know that you in many ways are guilty of the same thing. You and I are guilty of ignoring emotions like shame, fear, and guilt. We often live beyond our limitations. We often judge other people's spiritual journeys. To say it another way, you and I are so good and skilled at deodorizing our brokenness. But as the summer wore on and as the fall quickly approaches, I want you to know that it's going to be important if you're going to walk in the freedom that God has for you, that you've got to prioritize your spiritual and emotional well-being. And it would be really, really unwise for you to have a pre-lockdown mentality when we're in a post-lockdown world. You're, you're simply not the same person, and I'm simply not the same person that we were in 2019. We have experienced a lifetime of trauma that lingers in our soul, and if we are going to experience the liberation that the gospel provides, we've got to address the lingering effects of the emotionally unhealthy issues that have been exacerbated by the lockdown. And today I want to introduce you to a way that we can deal with that today in this famous passage in John 4 with the woman at the well. And I want to speak from the topic today of what Peter Cesaro calls going back to go forward. 
You know, uh, many of you may know this. I'm not sure if I shared this with my Epiphany Brooklyn family. Um, but before I became a pastor, I was an environmental scientist. I don't know if you know that. I don't know if you know any black environmental scientists, but hey, here I am. Uh, I, I would go to gas stations and uh, sample gas station. They had these things called potable wells or monitoring wells. You stick the baler in there, pull the water out. Anyway, you don't want to know about that. But anyway, I would show up to gas stations and I would sample the water wells. I would go to contaminated sites. I remember one time being in a swamp. I don't know if you've ever been in a swamp with waders, with like little animals around you. Like it's really weird. Like, but it was really an adventure. And I remember one time I was in Pennsylvania. I was driving. It was in the middle of a snowstorm and my car got stuck in a ditch. And I was worried. I had little to no uh, antenna reception. Like, I was doing bad. And so I was praying, and I was like, God, I really need a solution to this problem. So here's what I did. I saw a few feet away there was this retention wall, and it had these flat stones. So I grabbed a few of those flat stones. I put them behind the tires on my vehicle. And then I did the only thing that I could do, and that was back up. And once I backed up, I put the car in drive and I floored it and I was able because of my acceleration to get myself out of the ditch. And I'd argue that if you that this is not simply a, a helpful winter driving tip, but it's also a very critical lesson that in order for us to move forward in life, sometime the best thing that we can do is move backwards. Sometime the best thing we can do is go in reverse before we go forward. Now, I know that this is difficult for many of us because we believe in the gospel of upward mobility. We believe that success is linear, that we should continue to improve week after week, year after year, decade after decade. But what happens is, is what do we do when we feel emotionally stuck in life? What, what do you do when you feel like you've been spinning your wheels? What do you do when you, you feel like you're trying to move forward, but every time you take a step forward, it feels like these invisible hands moving you back? I'll tell you what happens. We lose confidence in God. We lose faith in God. And this is especially true of our emotional lives. Some of us right now feel stuck in life because we refuse to tap into those things in the past that kind of shaped who we are today. And let me just say this, we cannot move forward because we have not taken the time to go back and figure out how our families have shaped us into who we are today. Now, I know some of you are like, well, I'm not on real, I'm on the outs with my family right now. Like, we're not on talking terms. But here's what I want you to know. Uh, your family, whether you're in good standing or not, has a tremendous impact on who you are. Because of your family, your family is the one that helps you view sex, resolve conflict, the way we view sex, the way we express emotion, the way we deal with grief, the way we handle relationships is because of how we've been shaped by our family. And unless we are willing to spend time investigating, exploring, and addressing our family dynamics, we will never walk in the emotional freedom that we once had. Furthermore, what I'd suggest is that generational patterns of behavior will continue to impact us negatively unless we take time to delve into them. 
What I'm saying in not in so uncertain terms is this, is that if you want to move forward in your relationship with Jesus, if you want to walk in your plans and purposes, if you want to grow and become the best version of you that God has created you to be, sometimes the best advice you can take is not moving forward, but moving back to figure out how your trauma and family dynamics have shaped you into the person you are today for better or for worse. Sometimes that's what we have to do. And as I reread that book by Cesaro, I was struck by chapter four. And he argues two very real things. Number one, he says, blessings and sin of our family going back to the second and third generation profoundly impact who we are today. And he says, number two, discipleship requires putting off sinful patterns of our family of origin and relearning how to do life God's way in God's family. He said, this is the pathway to emotional health. Let's talk about family for a second. When the Bible refers to family, it's not talking about your immediate family. It's actually referring to your extended family going back to the third and fourth generation. And what that means is that you can make some decisions today that will affect your great-great-grandchildren. Like, like for this reason, it's easy to see how uh, generational patterns seem to reoccur in families. Think about it. In some of our families, we have a repeated cycle of divorce, addictive behavior, poor marriages, inadequate conflict mitigation, mistrust of leadership. To say it another type of way, family patterns of the past often play out in the present. Just think about it for a second. Let's look at some Bible. Look at, look at Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. These were Old Testament uh, patriarchs. And number one, one of the things you notice in their life is they had a pattern of lying. Abraham lies to Sarah about, uh, lies about Sarah being his wife twice. Isaac and Rebekah's marriage is comprised of lies. Jacob lies to nearly everyone. His sons lie about their little brother's death. There's a pattern of favoritism. Abraham favored Ishmael. Isaac favored Esau. Jacob favored Joseph. You also notice that there's poor intimacy. Abraham had children out of wedlock. Isaac had poor relationship with his wife, Rebecca. Jacob had two wives and two mistresses causing all types of internal conflict. And here's the thing. Their generational pattern is not unlike many of ours. Because if you dove into some of our family of pa family life and patterns of our family, you would see that we have replicated some of these same qualities. We have some of this same history. If you went through our history right now, some of us are dealing with sibling rivalry. Some of us are dealing with alcoholism. We've dealt with uh, domestic violence, broken relationships, promiscuity, and a host of other things. And here's what I want you to know, Brooklyn, is that you cannot erase your family's history. You cannot, in the name of Jesus, it away. You, you, you just can't shake it. So my question is, is you, you, let me say this. In the words of Will Smith, you can't succeed your way through trauma. So the question at hand is, well, what do I do, preacher? What do I do? I can't outrun my family's history. I've seen generational patterns play out in my lifetime. I've seen my grandma be abused and my mother was abused and I'm afraid that I'm going to do the same. 
locals taken advantage of and fall into alcoholism. And I do not want to repeat the patterns of the past. Can somebody tell me what do I do? Well, I'm so glad that you tuned in today because the Bible gives us an answer. And, that's, and that is that we can trust in the God of history that revealed himself all throughout the scriptures. Because I just want to let somebody know today that you, your biological family does not determine your future, God does. Let me say it another way. Your destiny is not determined by the detours in life. It's, it's, it's not. God, let me just tell you this. When Jesus died on the cross, he accomplished a few things. Number one, he removed the, the stain of sin and guilt. There was a divine transfer on the cross of Calvary. He took your sin and your unrighteousness and your bad habits, and he transferred them to his account. And on that, and what he did was transfer his goodness onto us. Not only that, he extinguishes the wrath of God that burns against us because of our sin, because we have strayed away from his perfect path. He, he, he defeated sin and his demonic, Satan and his demonic minions. He pays our ransom from sin. And here's what I want you to get. One of the things that Jesus accomplished on the cross of Calvary is he welcomes us into a new family. When you place your trust in Jesus, you got your adoption papers, right? Your, you, you got your adoption papers, right? When you place your faith in Christ, you were spiritually reborn. And then you were welcomed into a new family. Then the father permanently became your daddy. Your debt of sin was canceled. You were given a new inheritance, freedom from bondage, hope for tomorrow, and the promise that you will live in eternity. And furthermore, you were given some brothers and sisters within the church. So what I'm saying is that when Jesus died on the cross, when you accepted him savingly, he took that heart of stone, exchanged it for a heart of flesh. And at that moment, he welcomed you into a new family. You've been regenerated. You've been given his likeness and his image. All of that has been restored in Christ. And in this new family, we are welcomed into a relationship with a loving father. And in this new family, we have to identify. We have to explore. We have to denounce sinful patterns and habits of our biological family so that we can enjoy the freedoms in our new family. Are you hearing me today, church? That, that, that yes, you had a way of living with your biological family. But now that you are in the family of Christ, you are not destined to repeat the patterns of the past. However, you have to identify and explore them so you do not continue to repeat them in your lifetime. And honestly, I would say that that is the entirety of the Christian life. And you'll see in a second how this plays out with the woman in the well. Uh, why don't you grab your Bibles for me for a second. I want to read uh, John chapter 4. John chapter 4. I want to park in verses 17 through 19. But I'm going to read through the whole passage. And I just want us to identify some spaces. Is that all right today, Brooklyn? I knew it because y'all love the Bible. Y'all love the Bible at this church. So I knew I wouldn't have a problem. Let me read it for you here. John 4 verse 1. It says, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees 
had heard he was making and baptizing more disciples than John. Catch this, editorial note. Though Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were. Get this, he left Galilee. He, oh, yep, he left Judea and went to Galilee. And he had to travel through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sinkar, near the property that Joseph had given his son, that, that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, worn out from his journey, sat down at the well. It was about noon. And a woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus says, give me a drink, Jesus said to her, because his disciples had gone into town to buy food. How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? She asked, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered, if you knew the gift of God and who is saying to you, give me a drink, you would ask him and he would give you living water. Mm. Sir, said the woman, you don't even have a bucket and the well is deep. So where do you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? Are you? He gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and livestock. Jesus said, everyone who drinks from the water will get thirsty again. But whoever drinks from the water that I give him will never thirst again. In fact, the water I give will become a well of water springing up in him for eternal life. And sir, the woman said to him, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and come here to draw water. Catch this. Go call your husband, he told her, and come back here. She replied, I don't have a husband. You have said correctly, I don't have a husband. Jesus said, for you have had five husbands, and the man you have now is not your husband. And what you have said is true. <laughs> Sir, she says, the woman replied, I see that you are a prophet. And she gets theological. Our fathers worshiped on the mountain, but you Jews say that the place of worship is in Jerusalem. Therein ends the reading of God's word. And so uh, this scripture, this uh, is one of the most famous accounts in all of the Bible. I mean, uh, people love the woman or the, the woman at the well. I think it's a beautiful tale. Um, and I would say that it's probably, it stretches from verses 1 to 42. And I would probably argue that there are like five sections of this. First, you have what I describe as the context. This is from verses 1 to 6. This is kind of like editorial dialogue or editorial comments that are added by John. And then there's a conversation that commences in verses 7 to 25. And after that conversation in verse 26, you have a conversion. And then after that conversion in verses 27 through 37, you have this confusion by the disciples because they still harbor some animosity for the Samaritans. They're confused why Jesus is talking about her, talking to her. And then you see in verses 38 through 42, you have this, this magnum opus of a calling where she goes and tells all of the people in Samaritan or Samaria this man that told her everything she ever knew. And for, the, for our purposes today, I really want to hone in in on the, uh, the context from verses 1 through 6, and then I wanna, want us to look at one half of this conversation. I just want to give you context for where we're going, because I'm going to take a few rabbit trails. Uh, you know, I take these from time to time. So let's look at verses 1 through 6, and 
I don't just think these are editorial notes, though I do believe that John is really just setting the scene for what the conversation that he's about to introduce. I think as we, you know, really ponder upon this idea of emotional maturity, that this is Jesus modeling what emotional health looks like, right? Let's start at verse one. Look what it says. When Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard he was making and baptizing more than disciples than John, right? Now look at what it says at the top of verse three. He left. And here's what I want you to understand. At this point, Jesus had hit the height of his ministry. He had built an awesome team. He had turned water into wine. Affluent and influential religious leaders were coming to him at the middle of the night. Like his ministry was growing. It was multiplying. It was expanding. We would probably say in today's vernacular that revival was happening. Then at the height of it all, without expectation, it says in verse 3 that he leaves and he goes to a neighboring town. And as I, was, as I was pondering on this, I was like, what's going on? And I realized that Jesus was modeling emotional health. And what does that mean? Here, here, here it is. Here's my point. Emotionally healthy people reject the false gospel of the bigger being better. They reject the gospel, they reject the false gospel of bigger is better. You know, for many of us out there, we would say that success is a bigger bank account. We would say success is me getting more influence. You know, it's me growing, it's improving over time. And I would just argue that sometimes we wrongly define success. Because bigger is not always bigger. Bigger is not always better. Sure, you got that promotion, right? But you're always working. Like, you got that promotion, but it's, it's really taxing your emotional well-being. Sure, you got the bigger house or bigger apartment or whatever that is, but you got bigger maintenance bills. Like, Jesus could have grown his ministry, but if he had gotten bigger, it could have been a liability and not an asset. Why? Because his followers weren't emotionally healthy enough to deal with the growth that happened because of his influence. And I just want to argue and let somebody know out there, I know some of us have been praying for a promotion. I know that some of us have been asking God to do bigger and greater things in our lives. But I just want to let you know that sometimes getting bigger can be a headache. And, and, and furthermore, if you want to get bigger, I would say that you need to get better first, right? Before you get bigger, pray to God that he helps you get better. Because what is the point of getting that new job with that big check that comes alongside of it and you blow it because you're not better at managing money? What's the point of, of, of getting all the things that you dreamed and, and getting into the doors that you've been hoping God opens to you, but your character is not in alignment or your character is not at the place where it can keep you in the spot that you've been promoted to? Sometimes bigger isn't better. Sometimes it is. But I would say the best thing you can do in this season to model emotional health is get better before you get bigger. Let me go on because that's a whole nother sermon in and of itself. And so then John provides this interesting editorial note in verse 2. He says about Jesus baptizing. He said, though Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were. Now, I was thinking about this. I was like, well, well why wasn't Jesus baptizing anybody? Why didn't he actually baptize people? And some commentators, I respected what they say. D.A. Carson said, well, they didn't want to have any unhealthy preferences in the community. And I would say that that's quite possible. But I think another explanation is that Jesus is expressing emotional health. 
I'm sure that Jesus could have baptized everyone, but he doesn't do that. Instead, he allows others to participate in the mission, and he didn't have to take credit for his team's achievements. Here's what I want you to understand. Emotionally healthy people are secure leaders. (laughs) We're secure leaders. Insecure leaders see people as working for them, whereas secure leaders see people working with them. Insecure leaders are jealous of you when they see you walking in your plans and purposes, right? They, they, they're overbearing. They make your life hell, right? It's just terrible, right? They, they, they constantly see you as a threat to their position. But that's not the type of leader that Jesus was. Jesus wasn't the type of leader that felt, that felt lessened or that felt uh, impacted by his disciples' growth. No, instead, he would invest into his disciples because he wanted to see them pay dividends for lifetimes to come. And that's why I'm just trying to tell somebody, Pastor B and myself and other pastors around the world, we're trying to be emotionally healthy leaders that, because we get to participate in what God is doing. Right. When we give you volunteer opportunities, it's not because we need the help. It's because we're trying to give you an opportunity as a secure leader to take part in what God is doing in Camden and what God is doing in the beautiful New York City and Brooklyn area. We're trying to be secure leaders. Let me go on because I know my my time is ticking and I need to get to my points. Here's the next one. Honestly, I'm not sure why, you know, Jesus uh, doesn't baptize, but here's what I love, is that Jesus um, gave his, he probably gave his disciples uh, notes on how to baptize. In other words, if I imagine this with my holy imagination, it seems like Jesus had to teach them how to baptize. He had to teach them how they could, uh, how they could determine who should be baptized and who they shouldn't be baptized. Here's what I want you to know. Emotionally healthy leaders develop systems so that their teams can function at a high level right? We create a framework so that we can cut down on mistakes, maximize efficiency, and limit people from burning out. Let me go back to the narrative here. So, picking up in this narrative in verse 6 and 7, it says this. It said Jesus was, you know, he, he was traveling. He leaves Judea, and he travels through the town of Samaria because he's trying to get to Galilee, right? And here's what I want you to know um, is that Jews and and Samarian, Samaritans, they just didn't get along with each other. So, so much so that some Jews decided that they, they would go around Samaria to get to Galilee as opposed to going through it, right? And the reason that uh, there was a lot of issues between Samaritans and Jews is because when Assyria took over the northern kingdom, many of those Israelites intermarried. And when they intermarried, they adhered to the religious practices of the Assyrians. So when they came back to the land, not only did, were they viewed as religious half-breeds, but they were hated because they set up a rival temple and rejected much of the Old Testament except the Pentateuch, the first four, five books of the Bible. So, so Jews were like, nah, I hate the Samaritans. I'm going to bypass this route altogether. But the reason I love Jesus in the words of Tony Evans is because he commonly bypassed social customs because he saw that people had a spiritual need. So on this journey, it's about a day and a half journey. He sits down at the well and he's exhausted from his journey. But what I want you to notice is that anytime you see a well in the Bible, it's often indicative that there's about to be a divine encounter. Because as he's sitting at this well and gaining his composure, this Samaritan woman draws near. 
Jesus is catching her breath, and the woman draws near with her, with her pail to grasp some water. Now, the scripture doesn't, it doesn't tell us her name, but her behavior clues us in to her story, right? It tells us a lot about her story. So, what, what, Samar- what Samaritans would do was uh, to perform the daily activities, they would go to a local well, and they would take their pail, and they would take up some water, and they would take that water back to the town, and they would wash and cook and a myriad of other things. And what normally happened is that they would come during the time of the day when the sun was, uh, was not scorching them, right? So they would come early in the day or later in the night. And more often than not, they came as a group because the well was a place where they shared stories. It was a place where they developed community and all of those things. But we see something unusual in her behavior. She's coming to the well during the hottest part of the day. And what some theologians would argue is that this is shame-driven behavior. And um, uh, she is, because it seems like she's avoiding contact with other women, right? On top of that, it seems like she's relationally disconnected, and that's probably contributed to her relational isolation, On top of that, this woman is in a patriarchal society where she's seen essentially as property with no rights. She can't own a business. She's in this repressive power structure of the day, right? She has this deep sense of inferiority. More than likely, she's barren. She's poor. She's relationally isolated. And she's considered a racial half-breed. She displays all the hallmarks of a person that is grappling with shame. And the truth is this is that maybe you haven't come to the well this day with a pail to fetch water. But I would argue that some of us feel exactly like this woman at the well because we struggle with this deep sense of shame. We, we, we look at our bodies in the mirror and we wonder why God has created us this way. We feel unacceptable and defective and damaged beyond repair. Some of us are grappling with low self-image just like this woman. We, 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 we feel like we are worthless and we carry around this deep sense of humiliation. On top of that, some of us are, some of us are riddled with guilt Because we've inherited all of these negative scripts from our parents. Some of us, if we're honest, we feel imprisoned by the words of our parents. We're ashamed by the trajectory of our lives. And we think we are doomed to repeat the mistakes of the past. So Jesus sees this woman walk into the well. He sees her creeping up to the well and then he disarms her. He says, give me a drink. Now, for a second, she is stunned. She is flabbergasted. She says, how is it that you, a Jew, ask me, a Samaritan, for a a drink? Because not only did men not talk to their wives in public, they didn't talk to women in public. But the beautiful thing about Jesus is he was willing to do the things that nobody would do to reach the people that nobody wanted. And he disarmed her with a conversation. He disarms her defenses. 
That's exactly what he does. And he's like, listen, I don't really want to talk about the domestic relation issue with the Jews and the Samaritans. No, no. Let me get straight to the point. If you knew the gift of God and who asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Jesus is like, now let me cut through all the malarkey and let me get to the point. You need to know me because I can free you from this shame. And so what, he, what Jesus does is he draws her attention to the two major themes that really frame the rest of this conversation. He talks about who he is and the gift that he's willing to give. Let's start talking about this gift that he's willing to give. He talks about it in verses 10 and 13. He mentions living water. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. Uh, when I saw living water the first time, I was like, man, that sounds like an amazing sports drink. I really believe that in my heart. I was like, man, that is, that is, that is amazing. But, but when Jesus um, is talking about living water, he's actually referring back to Jeremiah 2.15, you know, of this cistern that God is willing to give his people. And if you look in Acts, it's really a euphemism for the coming of the Holy Spirit. And he's talking about how the Holy Spirit is like water because water is the, the source of vitality. Water is refreshment and it's nourishment. And, and when water has been working on a rock for a long time, it like carves a hole in it. And that's like what the Holy Ghost does with some of the sinful patterns in our life. When the Holy Ghost starts working on it, he just kind of moves them out of the way and cuts through that. Like he cuts through our old way of thinking. He cuts through um, those scriptures that have been playing in our minds like 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 uh, like all the time right right he's saying he's saying no 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 the holy spirit is like this living water on top of that it's cleansing it's freeing it's a beautiful picture of the transforming power of the spirit of god that's what it is but she's really not picking up on it She's not picking up on it. Remember, I told you her Bible ends in Deuteronomy. Jesus is in Jeremiah. And so Jesus is like, all right, cool. No problem. Um, You know, let me switch tactics. But nevertheless, even though she really didn't understand what he was talking about, she still said, give me this living water. And at this point, you and I would have been like, oh, you want living water? Let me tell you about me, right, if you're Jesus. You're like, let me tell you about the gospel. Let me tell you about those things. But that is not what Jesus did. He says this. Instead, in a non-accusatory tone, he says this. He says, go get your husband. (laughs) Go Go get your husband. She's like, how did we move from drinking some living water to you delving into my personal issues, right? And so she's like, let me just, let me just kind of brush this off. She said, oh, I don't have a husband. And then this is what Jesus said. He said, yo, you said correctly, you don't have a husband. For you have actually had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. At that moment, get this, Jesus takes her back so that she can go forward, right? He, he wanted to give her this living water that was going to transform her life. But before he did, he took her back. And the reason he does that, does that is because Jesus is looking to zero in on the most, the most significant source of her shame, and that's her family. Somebody needs to get that right now. Jesus says, before I can give you this living water, before you can walk forward in freedom, let me take you back to deal with the area that hurts the most in your life, and that is your family. Jesus is a great physician because he, like, takes his hand, and he, like, pushes it on a wound, and he says, ooh, I know this hurts. I I know that you've had men in your life 
that have promised to be there and they were gone tomorrow. I know that they promised to be with you and then they abandoned you. And that makes you have some sense like you don't need to be a part of a, of a healthy relationship. I know that your business, your personal life is the talk of town. But here's what I want you to see is that when Jesus brings up your past, he doesn't do it to hurt you. Jesus brings up her past so that she could experience the floodgate of healing and wholeness. Get that in your soul. I just need somebody to know that today. That when Jesus is pressing into the areas that hurt in your life, he's not doing so because he's trying to hold it over your head. He's doing so because he's trying to heal you. But isn't that the essence of the gospel today, church? Isn't that the sum total of the gospel? Because on the cross of Calvary, before we could move forward in our relationship with God, before we could move forward and, and be adopted into his family and get a new set of siblings called our brothers and sister in Christ, before he could be our permanent daddy, he had to move back and deal with the sins of our past. And because he moved back, you and I can walk into this prosperous future that God has given us. I just want you to get that today, church. Now, this is what she did, verse 20. Once Jesus starts pressing on the areas in her life that hurt, she turned the conversation into something theological. That, I mean, that's cool. Like, she turned it into something theological. She wanted to know if, the, if you should work at, worship here or worship in Israel. And that's what we often do in our lives. Oftentimes in our lives, when Jesus presses against something that hurts, we often try to sidestep it. We try to sidestep it with busyness. We try to sidestep it with doing for God, but not being with God. It reminds me of the passage in Revelation that when God is knocking at your heart, open the door. Because some of us, I'm, I'm, I'm sure, and, and I'm finished up here, but I'm sure some of us are experiencing deep-seated shame, feel guilt over the past. We're hurting. I said this last time, but we have all these ungrieved griefs in our lives. And we're like, God, how come I can't move forward? Like, every time I see that picture on Instagram, I'm triggered by it. I thought I was healed, but I really wasn't. I was really just not triggered. And what I hear God saying to somebody on here that's listening today is, you need to go back. You need to go back before you go forward. You need to identify some of those generational patterns. You need to identify some of those things that hurt mom and hurt dad so that you can walk forward in this new relationship with me. I just want to encourage somebody. Go back so that you can go forward. Father, we thank you so much for this time. Thank you for the abundance of your grace and mercy given to us richly in Jesus. Lord, I'm just deeply cognizant and aware that there are some people listening right now that are deeply worn out and they're exhausted. Lord, they're dealing with all these ungrieved griefs, all these burdens in their heart. They feel ostracized from you, cut off from you, God. And I pray as the great physician, as the great healer, that you would do a work in their hearts right now. Work in and through them, Lord. Heal them in the areas that hurt. Lord, I just get the sense that some people are like taking a, it's like taking a, a beach ball and trying to keep it underwater. Like we're concealing the truth about something, but eventually it's going to come to pass. 
And I pray, Lord, that you would do some healing, working in, in and through our hearts, we pray. In the mighty name of Jesus. And everybody that agree with that, say amen.